Our scripture for this morning comes from Isaiah 6. It's on page 1068 in your pew Bibles. Um, We're continuing uh, from last week where we also had the same scripture. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sounds of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard of the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. He said, Go and tell this people. Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, For how long, O Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. Last week, uh, we read this same passage, and we talked about the beginning of the chapter, about how God's holiness is unapproachable, because his beauty and perfection naturally judge us, in the same way that you might feel naturally judged any time that you come into contact with someone who's truly great. God's holiness was perfectly revealed on the cross, when God gave himself up out of love for the world that he created. But the world didn't recognize God's holiness when it came. This showed us that we are really far from understanding what true moral beauty really looks like. Because when perfection came to the world, we tried to destroy it. This week, we're going to be paying attention to two different responses to God's holiness and perfection. On the one hand, there's a character in the story who sees God's holiness and beauty as a treasure that's worth motivating his entire life. On the other hand, there's characters who see this holiness and beauty and abuse it either by taking it for granted or actively resenting it. We'll see that the cross, as the ultimate expression of God's holiness, gives us similar options. We can recognize the beauty and perfection that's revealed when this perfect son of God owes nothing to anyone, but gives himself up in love to suffer for the world and to set it right for our sake and learn to emulate it. Or we can take it for granted and take advantage of it, never changing our lives to look more like Jesus, 
and ultimately fall short of truly recognizing that beauty. So first, we have Isaiah, who recognized the beauty of God's holiness and wanted desperately for his life to change to look more like it. Isaiah enters the temple to do his job as a priest, but suddenly gets a vision of God sitting on his throne in the temple. When he sees God in all his glory, he immediately recognizes that the beauty of God sets a standard, like flipping the slideshow, um, sets a standard um, that he cannot meet. Just like when you meet someone that's so wonderful that you recognize that you can never be nearly as great as they are. When Isaiah sees the glory of God and then looks at himself, he realizes that all the small little sins that he's committed makes him feel small and pathetic by comparison. And I think I had a similar feeling one time. In the summer after I graduated from grad school, I was having a really hard time finding a job. One of my cousins went to a Catholic school, it was a Catholic high school, and at that school they had an opening for an English teacher job. Now, I hadn't taken an English class since high school, um, but I liked novels, and the classes I had reading and interpreting the Bible didn't seem all that different from reading and interpreting a novel or poetry in English, right? So I wrote this killer cover letter for this opening, and I felt really good about it. The letter talked about how my experience with biblical studies would make me a really good English teacher, and I think it was some of my best writing ever. So that letter got me an interview, and I felt like I really had a job lined up. So I got all dressed up for the interview, and I felt like I had a really good shot. Then I got to the interview, and I was tripping all over my words, and it wasn't feeling great, but I still thought I kind of had a shot. But then something really bad happened. Um, the class I was going to teach was on American literature, and they asked me something like, can you describe the developments in American literature since 1700? <laughs> Which was a perfectly fair question. And I had literally nothing to say. Just absolutely nothing. Like, I didn't even have enough to say to give a really bad answer that at least would be, could be considered an answer. Um, and it was at that point that I realized that I had nowhere near the actual kind of expertise necessary to be an English teacher. I came nowhere near that standard. So I just thought, wow, how absolutely silly was it for me to think that I could actually do that? How could I possibly walk in with so much confidence to a place where I clearly didn't belong? I remember driving home from the interview and looking at the suit that I was wearing that made me feel all confident going into the interview and remembering the line from the eighth Star Wars movie where Snoke says to Tylo, take that ridiculous thing off. <laughs> Isaiah faces a similar thing. He walks into the temple and sees God's perfect glory and realizes, how could I have ever been so presumptuous so as to just walk into this temple I come nowhere near the standard necessary to be near something so beautiful. He probably looked at his temple garments that he thought would be good enough to guarantee that he could come into the presence of God and thought, take that ridiculous thing off. Even if he did come in a little scared, how did he even dare to walk in at all? So he says, woe is me, for I am lost, because I am a man of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts. And God, by his grace, cleanses Isaiah so that he can remain there. So then when God asks, whom shall I send? Isaiah is completely ready to say, send me. Now having a vision of God's perfect beauty, he wants to live a life that's actually worthy of that beauty. 
Obeying God for its own sake is extremely important for him now. And God tells him that the gist of his message is that God's coming to judge the people of Israel, but that nobody's going to believe him. Isaiah is sent to send a message of doom, but nobody will heed that message, nobody will change their lives, and the wrath that's coming won't be averted. And this might seem like a pointless errand, but that's not important. Having seen the perfect beauty of God, he recognizes that this God is one that you have to obey. It's not about doing something productive, but simply obeying God. When we see the cross, we have a very similar opportunity. On the cross, Christ did the most beautiful act in all of creation. He gave himself up in love to suffer for people who didn't deserve it. And he did all of that in perfect obedience to his father. The, that beauty is at the center of all of reality. And anything that's beautiful in this world gets its beauty because it's a pale shadow of Christ on the cross. When we get a glimpse of his holiness, if we see it right, then we can't help but change. We look at our own behavior and our own efforts to get dignity and power and money for ourselves, and then we see them as dirty rags that are, look shameful compared to the splendor of God's holiness displayed on the cross. And we can't help but say, take that ridiculous thing off. We can't help but want to radically change our lives to look more like Christ. We want to have minds like that of Christ who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of humans. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Nothing can satisfy us now but the white robes of God's righteousness that now clothe us. And just like Isaiah, God will happily cleanse us and send his Holy Spirit to empower us to live aligned with that beauty. But there's another way that you can respond to, and that's the way that most people did. God made a covenant with Israel that he would adopt them as his chosen people and live among them. And if God lived among them, then they would be blessed by his presence, and Israel would carry that blessing into the whole world. All that Israel had to do was follow a few simple laws, like love God and love one another. And then all the things that makes this world sick, evil, pain, illness, and death, would be eradicated, and everyone would live in peace as God intended. But Israel had different plans. They recognized that God lived among them, and they figured that if God was with them, then God would never let other people come and invade, because they would have to invade God himself. And they thought that that would be true even if they made no attempt to follow God's laws. God was patient with them, and that led Israel to think that God would never let them experience the natural consequences of their actions. They treated other nations cruelly, and they thought that God would ne never let another nation treat them cruelly. They trampled on the heads of the poor, and they thought that God would simply allow that to happen because of his covenant that he had made with them. And so in Isaiah chapter 5, God sings this song comparing Israel to a vineyard. He says, let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. 
And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up in it. And I will also command the clouds so that they won't rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Through Israel, God's righteousness and presence were supposed to spread to the whole world and save it. Instead, they only made things worse. So God was going to judge Israel by sending the invaders and hope that one day Israel would return to its intention. Israel saw the holiness and justice of God and took advantage of it, thinking that God would sacrifice everything for them, even if they were evil and desecrated God's creation and made the world worse. And they were right for about 700 years until God finally allowed them to experience the natural consequences of the rebellion. And we too have a similar opportunity when we look at the cross. We can take advantage of the grace and mercy that God displayed there and believe that God would never hold us accountable. Through the cross, the same covenant blessings which God had with Israel is given to us today. But if you see the beauty of the cross and see it as something to be used to your own advantage, then you don't truly understand its beauty. The whole point of the cross is that the absolute reality of this world is that human beings are meant to give themselves up in love and sacrifice and suffering for God and for their neighbor. If you view that as an opportunity for selfish gain, then you haven't really seen its beauty. And that's a very dangerous thing. One of the parts of this passage that might seem a little bit odd is how God says, make the hearts of this people dull and their eyes heavy and blind their hearts. Why is God doing this? Doesn't he want his people to repent? In fact, it seems like a lot of ancient people had a lot of trouble with this passage too. There's a number of ancient translations where they tried to get rid of this problem by translating it differently. For instance, in the ancient Greek translation, the people of Israel hardened their own hearts. Uh, But it's true, there are a number of times where God hardens someone's heart and leads that person to suffering punishment. For instance, in Exodus, God hardens the heart of Pharaoh so that he would have to send the ten plagues against him. So what's going on there? Honestly, I'm not entirely sure, and nobody really seems to be. But one of the things that people who have their heart hardened tend to have in common in the Bible is that their hearts are already pretty hard. Pharaoh was already holding the Israelites in harsh slavery and making things worse for them for no reason. The Israelites would cry out to him to lighten their load, and in response, he would make their load even harder. Pharaoh had plenty of opportunities to change his behavior, and things would have gone better for him long before the Bible says that his heart was hardened. The same thing was true for Israel in this passage. God gave them their promised land on the sole condition that they at least try to keep the law that he was giving them. But Israel refused to do that again for hundreds and hundreds of years. The hearts of this people really were dull long before God sent Isaiah to dull them. 
Countless prophets told them that disaster awaited them if they continued down this path. But by their own choices, they made no effort to repent. They ignored the voice of God whenever they were given the option. When you read this passage, you might get the image that the people of Israel really wanted to repent, but that God was stopping them from doing it. But that's not what happened. The people of Israel already had dull hearts. The passage says, keep on hearing, but do not understand, and keep on seeing, but do not know. All that is happening is a continuation of all that Israel has done so far. And I don't think this is at all surprising if you have lived for a while. Habits are hard to break, and habits tend to form you spiritually. On a more innocent level, if you get bored and decide to look at your phone, that tends to form a habit. And eventually, eventually you'll find that every time you get bored, you'll look at your phone. And even if you try to change that habit, you find it's a lot harder than you think. You might say, yeah, this isn't a healthy habit. I spend too much time on my phone. Next time I'm bored, I won't look at my phone. But then you catch yourself already on your phone two whole minutes after you started and wonder, when did I make the decision to get on my phone? And the answer really is, you didn't make it. You didn't think about it at all. It wasn't a decision, really. But if you did make that decision, you made it like a year ago, when you actually had to think about what you, were, what you do when you're bored, and you chose a whole bunch of times to look at your phone. The decision was already made. You're just recognizing its effect now. You've hardened your heart against the part of you that doesn't want to look at your phone all the time. And it takes a lot of practice and hard work to soften it so you can change your behavior. Israel did a similar thing. At one point, they had to really choose whether they would follow God's law. They knew what God wanted from them, but every once in a while they would disobey God in small little ways. They probably felt a little bit guilty that they were doing it, but nothing went wrong immediately, so they figured they were still probably good. Eventually, though, they got used to the idea of ignoring what God wanted from them. And it got to the point that where what God wanted to do from them wasn't really consideration for them at all. They were going to worship these other gods and trample on the poor, and they didn't even think that maybe God had a problem with it. The prophets came and warned them that God wasn't happy. But we've gotten so used to ignoring them, so why would we pay attention now? And eventually it led to their destruction. Humans really are creatures of habit. Our brains are wired to continue doing things that we have been doing for a long time. In fact, babies are born with way more synapses in their brains than we have. Over time, a baby will go through a process called synaptic pruning, where they get rid of synapses that could be used for stuff that they don't do, so that they could strengthen the synapses that are used for stuff they actually do. In other words, they harden their hearts against things they don't use, and they soften their hearts to get better at things that they actually do. And every day, we're in the same process. There's a reason why you probably can't do high school math quite as well as you did in high school if you don't use it. And that's because your brain recognizes that you don't use those synapses and prunes them. So if you're constantly ignoring the voice in your head that wants to listen to God, then your brain will prune that, or if you're constantly ignoring that voice, um, then your brain will prune that synapse and it'll get harder and harder. But if you listen and obey God, It'll get easier and easier over time because your brain is wired to do exactly that. It's wired to continue to do, doing something that you do often and not to do stuff that you don't do. What that means is that often the biggest stuff that people do wrong 
are really just the fruit of some small, a lot of small stuff that they did wrong. A person who's caught embezzling funds is most often just found out right at the end of a long journey that involves ignoring the voice in their head that tells them not to steal. The crime that was committed was actually just the sum of a lot of different crimes which led them down the path of doing what's wrong. A man who cheats on his wife oftentimes has cheated in a thousand different smaller ways that even he has barely noticed. He might have looked at pornography for a long time in secret, or he might have allowed flirtations to go on progressively in more inappropriate ways. Over time, he hardens his heart against his duties and responsibilities towards his wife until he does something he never could have imagined that he would have done. He asks, who have I become and when did I ever make this decision? And the answer is, you made that decision a long time ago. You're just noticing it now. The reason that you resist temptation is not just because you're doing the right thing and obeying and pleasing God, but because doing the right thing makes it easier to do bigger and bigger right things. Disobeying God is a big deal, not just because you're disobeying God, but because it makes it harder and harder to obey God. We're creatures of habit. Every great and noble and beautiful thing a person does begins with tiny, insignificant practices in virtue. If someone does something thoughtful and wonderful for you, you can know pretty well that it's not an isolated incident. Someone who hasn't, even pra hasn't practiced being thoughtful and wonderful and generous wouldn't even think to do something generous without being prompted and without ever getting anything in return. Every little temptation we face has the potential to form us one way or another. C.S. Lewis said, good and evil both increase at compound interest. That's why little decisions you and I make every day are of such infinite importance. The smallest good act today is the capture of a strategic point from which, a few months later, you may be able to go on to victories you never dreamed of. An apparently trivial indulgence in lust or anger today is the loss of a ridge or a railway line or bridgehead from which the enemy may launch an attack otherwise impossible. Israel in this passage didn't choose to disobey God in such colossal ways. They didn't choose to be totally unreasonable and ignore God for thousands of years, except by choosing poorly in small and insignificant ways, one after another after another. It's important to remember that if you don't take the chance to repent now, you just might warp your heart enough that you never have the chance again. You become a person that you don't even imagine. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. But there's good news here too. The first time you resist the enemy and that you decide to follow Jesus in practical ways is always the hardest. It gets easier from there. You get more and more used to listening to God's voice. Even more. God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. He gives you grace and power every day to follow him. And his Holy Spirit dwells within you and empowers you. Sin gives you a yoke of slavery which is impossible to bear. It warps and changes you into something you never thought you could become. But God's yoke is easy and his burden is light. He understands our weaknesses because he became one of us. And he's not a taskmaster who demands perfection from us at every turn, but a loving father who died for us and gave himself for us. 
Every turn and every decision that we make that leads us away from sin and toward God is a move out of slavery and into freedom into becoming more like a child of God. We are no longer warped, but we are brought more and more into line with what God has intended for us. And in fact, we're brought more and more into line with the holiness that God displayed for us when he went to the cross. Our witness to the world can become more and more like the perfect witness to the beauty and righteousness of God that he displayed on the cross. Let's pray. Most holy God, give us a vision of the beauty of your cross so that we would be inspired to emulate Christ in giving ourselves up in love and service for one another and so that we would experience the blessings of your new world. In your name we pray, amen.